Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, are you ready? Are you ready for episode number 264? Because I don't know if you are. I don't know if I'm ready (laughs) for this episode. Uh, We're talking to Dana Hicks. Dana wrote a book called The Knot, How to Secure Healthy Modern Relationships While Not Being Tied to Marriage's Past. Uh, If you're like me, and you grew up in an evangelical world, in particular the more conservative, even like leaning fundamentalist end of the spectrum, that's where I dabbled (laughs) in a lot of my younger years, Uh, the word or the term I should say, biblical marriage, is tossed around rather freely, right, in regards to obviously gay marriage, but also things like living together before you're married, before you're married, sex before you're married, right? We're told that the Bible says A, B, and C about marriage between one man and one woman. Uh, You don't live together before you're married. You don't have sex before you're married. All that stuff, right? The Bible says it, and that's just the way that it is. Dana, in our episode, takes us through, we talk about biblical marriage. We talk about what that means, what that doesn't mean, things like that. He takes us through the history of marriage, like dating way, way back through antiquity, and shows us that the idea of marriage that we have today, uh, you know, that it's one man and one woman, you know, they, they meet each other, they date for a while, they fall in love, they get married, they have kids, they spend the rest of their lives together. Not only is that not like prescribed in the Bible, but it's a relatively new form of marriage. And it shows us how throughout history, marriage has evolved, changed, grown, as culture has evolved, changed, and grown. And the argument that he makes is that the same thing needs to happen today that's happened to marriage throughout the course of history, is that as times change, culture changes, societies change, marriage changes as well. And let me tell you, when we got to the, when I got to the end of this book, the end of this episode, I feel like the place where we land, once we talk about all the different things, the place where we land is so good. And I feel like if we, if we could collectively grasp kind of the big point of this book and the, the big point of this episode, collectively grasp it, I feel like we could make the world a much better place. Now you might be wondering, how is a topic of marriage going to do that? Let me tell you something. You got to listen to the episode and do yourself a favor and get the book. Uh, this is not, I say this in the episode, this is not your typical marriage book. Right? Do these three things and have a better marriage. Not Nothing like that at all. We're going to trace through the history of marriage. We're going to talk about uh, some different topics and talk about how marriage ought to keep evolving and changing with the culture. We talk about uh, premarital sex. We talk about uh, polygamy. We talk about polyamory. Uh, that word, by the way, I couldn't say it in the episode. I had it, I, I wanted to say something about it, uh, and I had the word in my head. I couldn't get it out of my, my mouth. And then when I tried to say it, I kept saying it. I couldn't say it right. So Dana uh, helped me <laughs> properly pronounce the word polyamory. And uh, it happened twice in the episode. I think the second time I edited it out. Uh, so I only humiliated myself once. But anyway, uh, really good stuff coming up. Do yourself a favor. I mean, stop what you're doing. If you can, pour yourself a cup of coffee or wine if that's your thing. Just sit with this episode and listen to it. 
and just let yourself be stretched a little bit and wonder, what if, right? That's what this podcast is about. What if there are ways of thinking about God and faith and Jesus and the Bible and things like marriage in ways that are drastically different than what our narrow tradition has handed us. If any to- if any episode fits within the definition of what the What If Project is about, this is it. <laughs> this is it. So uh, buckle up and enjoy. Link to Dana and uh, his book in the show notes. Also in the show notes, links to my book. Patreon if you want to support the show. Uh, you can do that anywhere from $3 a month to $100 a month. And uh, every tier, every offering, every gift, every gift, uh, you get entered into a Discord chat room where we chat throughout the course of the week and share with each other the highs and lows of life, our questions, our doubts, and uh, just a, a place to meet friendly and nice people who are also on the spiritual journey. So anyway, my friends, all I have to say, episode 264, uh, Dana Hicks and the Knot. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're sitting down with Dana Hicks to talk about his book, The Knot, and it's subtitled How to Secure Healthy Modern Relationships While Not Being Tied to Marriages Past. We have a lot to talk about, so Dana, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Oh, thanks so much, Glenn. I'm so so glad to be here and a big fan of your podcast and so uh, excited to talk with you today. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Have you uh, You've listened for a little bit? Yeah, for a little bit. Yeah, and uh, just appreciate your journey and the and the questions you ask. I think they're they're really helpful for sure. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you. So we're gonna get into the book uh, in a moment, but maybe before we do, if you could take a few minutes to introduce us to yourself, uh, especially for people yeah. who aren't familiar with you, your work. Who are you? What do you do? Give us a sneak peek into the life of Dana Hicks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, I grew up in a pastor's home and um, a third generation. Um, um, I guess, ministry person and mm-hmm. uh, spent 30 years as a pastor and uh, wearing a bunch of different hats, taught taught at a seminary adjunct. You for... mean as a pastor, you wear more than one hat? You, do, you just don't, you don't just preach and that's it's it? Tr- <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. But not only did I do that, but I also had other things on top of that. I worked for a nonprofit, uh, did some work in the nonprofit that we started uh, yeah. for some economic development projects in Africa and and uh, did some leadership training at a at a seminary, coached church planners, did a whole bunch of variety of things. COVID hit, and uh, to make a really long story short, I ended up retiring from ministry, and just uh, part of that was burnout, part of it was COVID, part of it was just kind of questioning whether I could give myself to this anymore, so... Um, so these days I like to write and uh, which has been fun because it allows me to say things that I couldn't say as a pastor. And um, <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> the, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to, uh, you know, to tell the truth as much as possible, which is fun. That that's becomes more my, my question is, you know, more about the truth than about, you know, how will this play? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of fun. And uh, so I'm writing and uh, I also work for uh, the United Way 
uh, doing um, different social projects here in the Phoenix metro area, overseeing those, helping expand some of those things. And so that's actually, uh, you know, I tell people I'm doing Jesus work, just uh, other people are paying me to do it. So it's that's great. Right. It's a different form of Jesus work, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. All right. So your book, here's the deal uh, with the book. In full transparency, uh, first of all, I'm your student today. Uh, when I picked up this book and I saw that it was about marriage, uh, I've read a lot of marriage books in my day. And so my mm-hmm. first thought was, I wonder if it's going to be one of those marriage books, <laughs> right? Like I do these three things or stop doing these five things. And here's what the Bible really says about about marriage. But it was really nothing like that at all. And I found myself discovering uh, things about marriage that I never, ever knew before, in particular, things about the history of marriage. And so I thought that we could maybe start there because a lot of people, I think, wrongly assume, and I was one of these people for a long time, mm-hmm. that like westernized American marriage is what marriage has always been. It's what marriage will always be. And it's like the best okay. definition of biblical marriage. And so assuming that some of our listeners maybe are there or have been there at some point, uh, take us into this topic yeah. of, of marriage, like about how it's evolved over the course of time, how we arrived at what we have like in the U.S. typically today, uh, with the rise of romantic marriage, I think you call it in chapter two. Just take us wherever direction you want to go. I'm all ears. Yeah. I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And and my journey is similar to yours, uh, Glenn, in that a few years ago, I picked up a book uh, by a woman named Stephanie Kuntz, who's a historian out of Evergreen College in, in Washington State. She has no, she's not a religious person, as far as I know, uh, and wrote the book just from a purely historical framework, uh, looking at marriage, comma, history is the title of the book. She just traces it from really the dawn of um, the agricultural revolution to today. And Mm -hmm. it's just fascinating. The book was fascinating to me. And again, like you blew my mind in terms of, I just assumed marriage was you know, I grew up in an evangelical church that kind <laughs> right. of taught me that that you know the way we do marriage now is the way Jesus taught us to do That's it, it. You know, and <laughs> came right from and, the, uh, right from the man himself. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, or probably Moses taught us, or right. Adam and Eve. I mean, you know, it goes way, 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 way back. But you know, when I read the book, it became really clear that that the way we understand marriage, uh, as I call it, romantic marriage, mm-hmm. has only been around for about two hundred and fifty years, really, for the vast majority of human history marriage was very different it was it was it was about survival mostly mm-hmm. people got married uh so that they could eat and they could not die uh and and it really had you know and of course there's exceptions to that i'm being very sure. painting with a very broad brush at this sure. point but but for most of human history people got married because it tied them together with their community it it allowed them to create alliances between clans and tribes mm-hmm. uh, it allowed them to uh, create more workers for the fields mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was a real economic drive of the reason that people got married uh, and and it created a legitimacy to them passing on inheritance of of, of property in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So marriage as an institution really didn't come about before the agricultural revolution because we really didn't need marriage before that. Uh, and the idea of owning stuff didn't really come about until the agricultural revolution. We were hunter-gatherers. We human beings were hunter-gatherers. We just kind of wandered around, did our thing. And and the idea that, that uh, we had to sort of make sure that our progeny carried on the property, the real estate that we owned, wasn't an issue. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, marriage wasn't always around in human history, and 
Uh, and the way we understand marriage today is only about 250 years old. So about 250 years ago, people began to sort of question uh, the origins of marriage. Uh, most marriages, of course, in human history are arranged. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, parents would work out these arrangements to try to create a, a, a positive situation for the family. Um, you know, it wasn't about love. It was, you know, it wasn't like two people fell in love and the parents acquiesced to that. It was mm -hmm. the parents said, no, you're going to marry this person because we need to water our our flocks in their in this watering hole kind of thing. Yeah. Um, about 250 years ago, people began for the first time in human history to make decisions for themselves as to whom they will marry. Mm. Uh, there was huge pushback, especially from the church at this time, because why would you leave such an important decision up to hormone hormone filled young adults? This is just a prescription for disaster. You know, <laughs> hormone filled young adults do not make good decisions about who they should marry. And turns out they were right. <laughs> that, you know, they said the divorce rate is going to go through the roof if you let people marry or let happiness be the basis of marriage and they were right it did yeah. go through the roof um and so that's sort of what uh what what sort of happened in human history is that suddenly marriage became a shift from how do we survive and make to the next day to how do i how do i allow marriage to make me happy mm -hmm. and when we started asking a different question of marriage it created all kinds of unintended consequences of for for what marriage could be now of course yeah. i'm not advocating that we go back to arranged marriages and i'm sure most of your listeners are wouldn't wouldn't be fans of that either <laughs> but uh, uh i i do think that uh that we've had this experiment for a couple couple 300 years now and we can kind of take a step back and say maybe romantic marriage isn't the end-all be-all and we can maybe begin to think of marriages in new ways marriages evolved in the past into mm -hmm. to become different than than what it has been uh perhaps we can allow marriage to continue to evolve and we could ask different questions of marriage uh and what that might look like so that's really that's a, a short summary of, of really the book uh and how it kind of ties into the history of it yeah so now did this shift from marriage being about survival to romantic which we said about 250 years ago did that have anything to do with the cultural shift as well kind of moving towards individualism towards that oh, rise sure. of the individual like it's all about me and we see that even like in the in the church in terms of salvation like it became all about me and my personal relationship with personal God. relationship like, did, with jesus did all yeah. those shifts kind of tie into into one for sure yeah i mean some of it was philosophical some of it was mm -hmm. economic too you know the industrial revolution allowed people you know, it used to be that you had you relied on your parents to pay a dowry for you to have a bride. Yeah. Well, the economic or the industrial revolution allowed young men to then raise their own dowries and they didn't they weren't dependent on their parents anymore. So there are economic factors that played in. There were philosophical things that played in. And there's sort of this perfect storm that sort of came about uh, at that time that, that that shifted the way in which we understood marriage. Yeah. So you talk about these unintended consequences of romantic marriage. What are some of your thoughts about that? Because you have a whole chapter on that in the book, which yeah. I thought was really good. And I never, again, that's like something I never considered because you just take for granted that this is the way that it is. And so, yeah, there yeah. might be some problems, but the problems are probably my own fault for 
being this fallen sinful creature. That's just what you were taught, right? So that must mean not be doing it right. But what are some of these unintended consequences of romantic marriage that you're you're talking about? Yeah, you know, uh, and and to kind of piggyback on on mm-hmm. what you're saying in there, you know, there's a saying in organizational leadership that 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 we say, you know, every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. Mm-hmm. In other words. If you're, you're you're getting consistent results out of a particular way of doing something, quit looking at the people and start looking at the system because the system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Uh, and this is the same with marriage. At some point, we got to quit looking at the people and saying, you just got to love Jesus more. That's why your marriage is so miserable. <laughs> and maybe start looking at the system itself. Right. Uh, you know, of what that looks like. But to answer your question about, yeah, so these unintended consequences. So Again, I'm not advocating for going back to arranged marriage or anything mm-hmm. like that. And I think there were certainly limitations uh, to to the way we understood marriage in human history before, you know, 250 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think people should have should have uh, agency in who they marry. I'll just go out on a limb and go <laughs> say that. You know, we we should have agency in that. I think that it's great that we don't view women as property anymore. I think mm-hmm. that that's really good progress in human history. Uh, but again, what ends up happening in, in romantic marriage then is we begin to look for, human beings begin to look for their soulmate, mm-hmm. uh, this romantic notion that there's one person that's out there, that I just meet this one person, they'll they'll meet every human need that I possibly could have, mm-hmm. uh, they'll anticipate everything that I'll need in my life. Um, I'll never have to work at this relationship because they'll just it'll just be so natural and so beautiful, you know. And so, you know, as a pastor, I, you know, I would counsel couples that would say things to me like, clearly, this is not the person I was supposed to marry because this is hard. Right. <laughs> I would think to myself, it's always hard. You it's know, it's supposed be to be hard. That's <laughs> right. the way marriage is, you know. Uh, and so we would put all our eggs in this one basket thinking. If I just find this one person, they'll meet every need that I'll ever have. Most of human history, you know, it, it took a village to sort of like meet all of those sort of needs in our life. It would take a it would take a village of people. We would never put that much burden on one human being to say, uh, you know, you're going to be my my uh, my best friend. You're going to be my lover. You're going to be my co-parent. You're going to be my financial partner. We're going to collaborate together on on uh, work things. We're, I mean, we're going to you're going to be oh, God know, to list. me. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, it, it, the amount of weight that we begin to put on human mm. beings on on our partners was just overwhelming to them. Or began to we still do uh so this whole soulmate idea this idea that we find this one person um it uh it's a prescription for disaster really because yeah. nobody's perfect everybody you know there's no one person that's going to do that for you mm-hmm. uh and no matter how wonderful they are they're they're just never going to do that and uh, we're just not wired that way and again it gets back to that like you're talking about that sort of autonomous idea that you know we as individuals uh, don't need other people outside of ourselves and it's uh it's just a a myth of of the way in which we live hmm. so you know naturally so again the unintended consequences that sort of come about out of that we 
you know, marriage failures because people are really disappointed in, in the outcomes of their marriage. Mm-hmm. We become really isolated too. You find married couples and social researchers are finding that if you're married, you're more isolated than if you're single, which is kind of a bizarre thing to think about. Yeah. Uh, more people are uh, identify as lonely who are married than the, who are single, which is really an odd deal. We, we isolate ourselves because the idea is that once I find that perfect person, I don't need all these other people. I don't, you know, I don't, these are all peripheral sorts of things. And so we isolate ourselves more. And um, then purity culture kind of comes about 250 years ago as well. You know, as we begin to see, we begin to define purity in a sexual sense for the first time in church history, mm-hmm. we begin to think of uh, what it means to be pure, uh, you know, in, t- in terms of uh, sexuality, as opposed to other ways. We used to measure holiness in terms of like, how well do you treat your neighbor? How well do you treat mm-hmm. the, the, the sojourner among you, the, the foreigner? How, how well do you, you know, do you feed the homeless? Do you, do you, you know, clothe the naked, those sorts of things. And then all of a sudden, 250 years ago, we began to measure holiness in terms of like, can you keep your pants on when you're supposed yeah. to, which is a really an odd, if you th- if you take a step back from it, it's a really odd sort of way to, to begin to think about it. Where did you know, that, where of- did, yeah, where did that, I mean, that's an interesting topic, like that, that shift in holiness from being something about, like you said, do you care for your neighbor, things like that, to sexuality like is there was there something going on in the church in the world at the time that kind of caused that shift because i've noticed that i mean obviously i've noticed that a lot but when i was a pastor it was very striking to me when i went for my first interview at the church for to get the job and they sat me down and all the questions were about obviously my theology things like that but there are a lot of questions about human sexuality but very Mm -hmm. little i would say maybe even no questions about like how does this theology of yours help you inform your life and the way that you treat people? Like, you know, do you put your shopping cart back when you go to the store? Like, so, like simple things like that. Like, how do you treat the cashier? Like, there's just no questions about my day to day life of holiness. It was all about my thoughts about human sexuality and things like that. And it just it that was very it was a huge awake like an aha moment for me. That was just like yeah. the church is very obsessed with this and doesn't really seem yeah. to care about this other aspect of things. I don't know if you have any well, insight frankly, to that, but yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think part of it came about, um, uh, you know, there, I talk in the book about Freud and the Madonna horror complex. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of a lot of psychological stuff, stuff, I think. Yeah, and, yeah that, that, that gets into that. But I think part of it, too, frankly, I think it's a lot easier to define my holiness in terms of um, my sexuality than it is to actually care about poor people. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I and now my job is is really about, you know, uh, a lot of what I do is trying to find the the. I mean, my profession that I'm working in now with the United Way is is trying to find places in our community that where people are falling through the cracks and and trying to you know get shore up those sorts of things. And again, just because that's now in my mindset day to day, I just keep thinking to myself where are all the churches you know, in all of this? It's, it's, it's really an odd deal, you know, because yeah. it's so much easier to talk about sexuality than it is to get your hands dirty. Cause it's really messy. It's yeah. really messy work to deal with poor people yeah. and uh, it's complicated. And, you know, they don't, um, they're not always grateful. 
Yeah. Like we think they should be. They don't treat us like the white saviors that they, that we think we are sometimes. And, yeah. and uh, so it's, it's, I think that's, that's a lot of it. It's just frankly a lot easier to, to think of ourselves, to think of holiness in, in, a, in sexual, in terms of sexuality, as opposed to the way Jesus defines it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. I want to shift gears. And I want to talk. I want to read for you a Mark Driscoll quote. And I want to oh. ask you to respond. Are you ready? Do you need to take a sip of water? You're going to be, you're going to be all right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. I am. He's writing a book on marriage as well. And he's currently doing yeah. a sermon series on sex, which is very interesting. Um, so he he's, loves he's, sex. He does. He loves sex and what people do with their genitals and all the different things. But uh, yeah. anyway, this is, this is a relatively new quote. He posted it on Twitter a couple weeks ago, Facebook too. I'm blocked in both places now because I had something to say about it and other things, but uh, here we go. This is what he said. I'm going to read it for you and for our listeners. He says, we will see polygamy legalized in our lifetime. Uh, just because you see it in the Bible doesn't mean it's biblical. There's a quote. We could, we could take that quote out of context and we <laughs> for Mark. <laughs> probably one of the few things he said that I'm like, okay, maybe that's, that's kind of, that's kind of, that kind of works. But anyway, he says the entire Middle East conflict is the result of Abraham having a relationship with more than one woman uh, i'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this because yeah. i have no idea what yeah. you're going to say but that statement especially the last part about abraham having a relationship with more than one woman being the cause of the entire middle east conflict uh that just invokes rage in me for some, for some reason but i really want to know what you have to say about this especially in the light of like the history of marriage and just how polygamy things like that fit into it and what what exactly is going on? So, much, so getting back to our previous, co- I have yeah. a lot of thoughts on this, but but the first <laughs> thing I, I thought of uh, when when you read through is is that again getting back to our our previous conversation, mm-hmm. how all of a sudden human sexuality is the cause co- the root cause of all of our social problems, and if we just get people to keep their pants on, oh, we got to do, and we can solve all the problems in the world as if they're that simple to solve. Right. That being said, let me give you a full disclosure here too. Um, I've known Mark Driscoll for 25 years. Uh, he and I, um, used to pastor in Washington state, um, many, many years ago, we met at a leadership network, um, event that was how to reach gen Xers, which will show my age. It was for young leaders, which again, will show my age, how long ago that was. (laughs) But, uh, Mark and I became friends because we lived close to each other and we used to hang out a bit together and, um, uh, we kind of grew apart over the years. Um, so I've known him for many years. So that's part of my full disclosure on this. Mm -hmm. And the thing I've known from Mark from the day I met him, uh, two things, one, he's, he's hysterically funny, Mm -hmm. which I've always appreciated. Uh, but he's also the king of hyperbole in part because he just loves to get a rise out of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's very, very good at that. He gets a high <laughs> on that, right? <laughs> he does. I remember years ago, I was at a conference with him and he was going to lead a workshop and they were doing a mic check. And he's, he's they said, Mike, or Mark, can you talk into the mic and, you know, give us the sound? And he goes, yeah, sure, sure. You bet. You bet. Uh, sodomy, sodomy. <laughs> so he kept saying over and over again, check one, two, sodomy, you know, and it's just like, he, again, that's just Mark. That's yeah. who he is. You know, he mm-hmm. just loves to rattle the cage, goes to get people worked up, loves hyperbole. So part of the, I, I take everything like this with a grain of salt in terms sure. of him and hyperbole, number one. Number two. Mm-hmm. There's the use of the word biblical, I think, that he uses in here, you know, that um, 
just because the Bible says it doesn't mean it's biblical. The whole concept of biblical has this really weird connotation. I think anybody who's a serious student of the Bible doesn't say that. Yeah. Because if you've read the Bible, you realize the Bible, I mean, was written over a period of thousands of years by dozens of different people and different languages, and different yeah. cultures and different yeah. understandings of the world. And, and uh, you know, to, to have this sort of notion that, oh, yeah, it's just all some sort of cohesive, coherent, you know, thing. Yeah, uh, pretty much demonstrates to me that you haven't really been a serious student of it because yeah. nobody who's a serious student of it thinks that way about it, that there's a biblical view, in yeah. other words. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, the second thought on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but hyperbole doesn't allow for nuance so that, you know, I understand that. And then I guess part of the the other thing I think that's interesting in, in the tweet, too, is, you know, correlation and causation, you know. Um, yeah, polygamy. uh uh, happened with um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, you know there's mm-hmm. there's polygamy as part of that that soup for mm-hmm. sure. But polygamy is also, you know, as they study cultures in human history, they say eighty percent of the cultures in human history are polygamous. Mm-hmm. They didn't all create Middle East conflicts, you know, right. and um, all all wars in the United States were started by male U.S. presidents, mm-hmm. you know. There, but I don't think the problem is is maleness necessarily, although it could be part of the problem, testosterone. Mm-hmm. But, but um, you know, again, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. There's mm-hmm. a correlation between male presidents and wars, but I don't think we should eliminate male presidents. Therefore, sure. you know, uh, I mean, so I, I think again, there's a there's an there's some weird play going on in there. But yeah. but yeah, this gets back to again this this sort of notion that that. Um, you know, one man, one woman, one lifetime, that mm-hmm. somehow uh, this is a simple formula that's in the Bible and yep. that this has been passed down since the beginning of human history. And that's not at all uh, what, what we see in human history. We see we see polygamy. We see people who um, who who really have no relationship, don't really make a correlation between love and marriage in the same way that we do. Yeah. Uh, the book of Song of Solomon is a great example of this or Song of Songs, right? There's there's this couple and they're just in love and they, you know, they're playing around sexually and they're having a great time. And it's pretty clear from the context of different clues that we pick up in the book that they're not married. Yeah. Uh, and so, again, if you want to talk about biblicalness, you know, <laughs> they're it's kind of a glaring obvious uh, thing that happens here in the middle of the wisdom literature the, of the hebrew scriptures yeah yeah i think with me like the thing that got gets me and him and i went back and forth a couple of times on twitter just regarding just this this demonization of people who fall outside of this narrow stream of understanding and you know particularly about gay marriage and you know people mm-hmm. who are sleeping together before they're married. And like just this very narrow view of understanding. And anybody who's outside of that is clearly wrong and going and going to hell. And so for me, it was just like I don't I, I don't understand that that need to pin blame on somebody who's different than I am and just say that that whole way of living is is wrong and is evil. Because polygamy, I know people who I, I don't the, the word I'm gonna say it wrong is p- p- polema people who are polyamory in yes that's the word i can never say it right but i'm just gonna let you say it <laughs> but that's the word i'm looking for but i know people who are in those kind of relationships 
and they're very mm -hmm. happy. They're very fruitful. Like they're, they're living their life. And like, who knows if that works for them, that's fine. But like, who are we to say that like someone who lives their life that way is evil and wrong and not biblical and everything else. When in reality, they might be living a very fruitful lifestyle, might be very close to, to the Lord, so to speak, and living their life that way. So if, if, if things turn in that direction, Who's to say it's evil and it's wrong? And that's what I, I just don't understand. Yeah, and one of the chapters in the in the book, you know, I, I is entitled "Form Follows Function," and and it comes from that sort of notion of that um, from architecture is where the saying comes from. You know, that that a building, the way a building is created, the form that a building takes should follow what you intend it to be. Yes, um, which yeah. seems obvious, but the the whole notion of form following function really is 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 a description of life as as we experience it uh and and in the context of marriage we would say you know the form marriage takes isn't really the the big issue here mm -hmm. it's how does it function in a person's life yeah um not what it looks like on the outside but what it does because we all know people that conform to the to the norm you know to the to what to what uh the the stereotypical marriage is supposed to be who are absolutely miserable yep. and who who's married the fruit the net fruit of their marriage is is not love it's something else yeah um and so maybe the question really is how how do we create forms of marriage that function lovingly yeah that seems to me to be the the million dollar question, and I don't think there's a simple answer to that. And I think that that answer varies a lot based on, uh, you know, people are different, frankly, and their stages of life are different. You yeah. know, the way people relate when when you're a newlywed is very different than the way you relate when you've been married for fifty years. My parents are celebrating their sixtieth wedding anniversary this summer. You know, and uh, and. You know, I just in their own life, I just have observed. I mean, the way they relate now is very, very different than the way they did when they had us at home. The way that yeah. when we were college students, when we were really young kids, when before they had kids, I imagine it was very different as well. And yeah. the different stages of life and the yeah. different things that they so so to to say that, you know, there needs to be a form of marriage or 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 the way in which we we bring out the most love in a marriage should should be the same for everybody's ridiculous you know uh, every marriage is different and every person is different and every every the dynamic that they bring together is different too what yeah. the the better question than are you conforming to a normative standard of, of what it should look like is is this functioning to be a, a place where you that that's a loving environment for you and for the people around you yeah so that what seems is it to be just oh, yeah go ahead. No, I was gonna say. So, what does it look like then for marriage to evolve from this place where it is now in this romantic stage? Like, if we evolved 250 years ago from the communal aspect and the um, the survival aspect and the economic aspect into romantic, like now 250 years later, what does it look like to keep evolving within the context of where we live? Because let's put it. Bluntly, there's laws in place and things like that in the country, like different laws regarding marriage and sure. things like that. So, like, what does it look like to keep evolving in a way that lives within the confines of those of those laws? Yeah, there's yeah, there's legal questions in that, and I think part of the problem that the church kind of got itself into was mm -hmm. that they uh, they became agents of the state in marriage, you know, and and in Europe that that usually isn't the case. You 
in Europe, you go down to the courthouse and you get married and then you go to the church and you do a, a, a wedding ceremony if you want to do that, if you want yeah. a religious ceremony in addition to it. And so there's this clear delineation between church and state in that. Mm-hmm. Our problem is that we we don't have that line- delineation, you know, and then like I'm sure when you were a pastor, Glenn, I mean, you when you officiated, you had to sign documents from yeah. the county courthouse you know saying that uh, you officiated this thing and that it's all good and and so that creates problems in and of itself i think because it's harder to ask these questions now because now you got to involve the state in these questions right and that's sort of what made gay marriage complicated in our country as well is Mm -hmm. the is exactly that is that you know the the intertwining of church and state in there but but yeah i think people are dealing with this in different ways you know a, a lot of a lot of people are giving up on marriage. You know, the number of people getting married is going way down and the divorce rate is going down in part because people get married less, you know? Uh, and so it's, uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a tricky deal. And and I, I think people are pretty disillusioned with marriage, understandably, yeah. and, uh, and don't really see the benefit of it. They grew up in a household. I, I talked to countless people, you know, I grew up in a household where my parents fought all the time and I'm good. I don't need that. <laughs> my life at all you know yeah i've seen enough of that and so yeah. a lot of people are just giving up on it um you know a lot of evangelicals kind of get into the you know let's double down we just need to try harder if we try even harder and harder we can we can do this and yeah and, um, um, and in some cases you know yeah i think you know that that works for some folks you know they they certainly they they need to learn some tools they need to figure it out they need to get better at it and that that certainly is is helpful yeah um when I went to Africa, uh, I, you know, I worked for this nonprofit that did economic development projects in Africa. And, and one of my first trips over there, I was talking to a African pastor there and, and, you know, they of course had polygamy, you know, mm-hmm. as part of their practice and in some of their congregations. And I, I didn't know that. And it kind of surprised me. And I mentioned something to the, this African pastor and he said, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you guys have polygamy too in your country. And I said, Oh no, no, we don't. And he says, Oh yeah, you do. You just marry different people. Uh, you know, you're just serial polygamists instead of <laughs> like marrying all women at one time. You just marry four or five women over the course of a lifetime. Right. And I thought, yeah, touche. You're right. Right. You're exactly. <laughs> tomato, right. tomato. So ser- <laughs> yeah. So serial monogamy is sort of the is sort of the the way some people have dealt with this as well. You know, is sort of just saying. Um, you know, we'll do this till it doesn't work. And then we'll find, we'll do our hunt for the next soulmate, you know, kind of thing. But yeah, reinventing marriage. I think part of, part of the book was I wasn't trying to provide a manifesto for marriage as much as just begin to open the question to say, you people are smarter than I am. Figure this out. I mean, you know, uh, and, and you need to figure it out for your own life too. What's working for me is probably, will not work for you just because we're different. You know, everybody's just different enough that, that, uh, you know, we have to sort of find our own way in this. And so part of what I outlined in the book is, is beginning to think about what are the different ways that, that we need human beings in our lives, you know, that what used to take a village, you know, somebody, um, we need, we need friendships, we need people, activity partners, we need, we need um, stability in our lives in terms of, you know, a roof over our head and food to eat and those sorts of things. We need parenting partners. We need uh, financial partners to help us professionally, those sorts of things. And again, we're not going to find that in one person. So how do we, 
how do we divvy that up, you know, into, into different, into different parts. Um, and, and, and think of, think of marriage, not as trying to find one person to do all those things, but one person that we really like that can do some of those things that, that we can keep our expectations realistic for them. Yeah. So then are you, are you saying that like different relationships in our lives can fulfill these different things? Is that part yeah, of what I'm hearing? That's, exa- that's exactly it. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I, I, I've, I've observed people like this all the time, you know, that, you know, they, um, I know, I know a woman who, um, her husband is pretty closed off emotionally mm-hmm. and um, she loves him a lot, but she knows that if she really wants deep emotional connection, she's going to have to get with her friends, you yeah. know, yeah. and that that's not going to happen with her husband. And, and she, so she's resigned to that and she's okay. He does some other things really, really well in their lives, you know, and he's a, he's a great parent. He's a, he's a great provider and all those sorts of things, but she's just kind of resigned herself to, okay, this is just, my expectations of this marriage, you know, it's not going to be that he's going to be that. And, and then I have other, other friends, you know, and you probably know people like this too. I know this woman, she married this guy and she's like, I'll marry you, but you're a financial mess. And I do not want to be entangled in this. We're going to have separate finances. We are not going to be financial partners. Don't touch my money. (laughs) Exactly. You are a boat anchor to my finances. And so we're going to keep this all separate and they do everything separately, you know, and uh, just decided that their marriages isn't going to include that piece, you know, and, um, and and that's worked for them. They've been able yeah. to figure that out. Yeah. You know, there's other things, other glue that holds them together that that's beyond the financial piece, you know, um, you know, and and then, you know, as you mentioned, the polyamory folks, you know, sometimes people get to that point where they're like, uh, you know, you're a great parent. You're a great financial partner. You know, we have this life together, uh, but but uh, at the end of the day, I've got to find I've got to find ways to find, you know, love and romance outside of this. And yeah. and and they do that. And, yeah. um, you know, on, with the consent of their of their partners in it. And so I, I think, you know, looking at it from a theological framework, I don't I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. Um, it may not be my cup of tea, but sure. but uh, but, you know, again, we're asking a different question, not what is the form of the marriage, but how does it function? Yeah. You know, what's what's going to bring about the the most love uh, in, in the marriage and in the community around them? You know, when people when people only live to be 35, 40 years old, you know, when you said till death do us part and your marriage vows, you know, it was like, yeah, I can put up with 20 years, you know? 10, 15, 15 years, whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I can handle this, you know, <laughs> but you know, my parents, they're, my mom turns 80 this year, you know, again, they've been at it 60 years. That's a whole different commitment yeah. than, yeah. than what people used to do. And that's part of the dynamic, I think, in human history that's sort of coming about as well. You know, as we're living longer, you know, now we're, we're asking some different questions, you know, yeah. People are empty nesters and you're going to be empty nesters for 30, 40 years, you know, yeah, yeah. before you die. Yeah. I mean, th- this is what I love about about the book is that it it, it makes, makes you ask more questions than it does give answers. Because like I said, I read the book and now I've got like all these questions that I, I don't know what to do with because it didn't prescribe anything for me necessarily, but it made me yeah. rethink a lot of things that I assumed were just the way that it is. And I think for me, like one of the biggest points in the book is that Maybe we need to stop prescribing for everybody 
what marriage is supposed to be and start thinking about, like you said, not so much the form of it, but the function of it. Like what is, is the, is the, is the function that you, that you have within the form of your marriage? Is it fruitful? Is it, is it benefiting you? Is it benefiting your partner? Is it benefiting the world around you? Because like, I remember I worked at Apple for 11 years. And so I came out of the church, pastoring a church with this mindset that this is the way that marriage is, everything else started working with, you know, stores of sometimes 100, 150 people in these stores and you get to know people. And a lot of these people don't come from religious backgrounds. A lot of them come from different cultural backgrounds. A lot of them are part of the LGBTQ community. A lot of them are just living their lives in drastically different ways than I did. I knew possible in my little tiny church bubble. And I can remember having this conversation with somebody who they were older and they were with somebody for like, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 years, but they weren't married. And I remember I said to them, like, why aren't you married? And that was just like a foreign idea to me. And they're like, well, we just yes. we just don't need the institution of marriage. I was like, how could you not need the institution of marriage? Like you're already married. It's just a piece of paper. But I couldn't understand the fact that like they were doing things differently than what mm-hmm. the church and even in some ways the state said that they needed to to do it. And they were just living their life in this different way. And that that began to open up my mind a little bit to think, well, maybe there is a way to be in a functional relationship with somebody that is just different than what the norm is that we've been told is the norm. Yeah. So a lot of, yeah, like you say, and I think that was my experience too. A lot of these, you know, ideas sound great in the ivory tower, you know, of like, mm-hmm. you know, we'll find everybody, get everybody conform to this one standard and then everybody will be happy, you know? Well, yeah. Reality is is much more complicated and much more nuanced than that. For sure. Yeah, and I think it's important too to you know try to understand people who are in those different kinds of places. You know, because like I said before, right. going back about Mark, is that it's easy to demonize something we don't understand. Uh, when in reality, it's much harder to actually put in the effort to try to understand it. It's harder to have a conversation with somebody like you're in this, you're in this, you're in this relationship that is completely foreign to me. I don't understand that at all. Uh, I'm not going to judge you or demonize you, but help me understand why this works for you. And I think by asking those kinds of questions, you begin to understand like, okay, well, that's not going to work for me, but it does work for this person. I can see that the fruit uh, of their relationship is obviously good for them, good for the people in the relationship and good for the world around them. So how can that be a bad thing if we're judging the tree by the fruit that it gives? And I think that when we put in that effort to understand, it can just open up our minds so much more than saying, well, this is what it says here in this book. And, you know, this is what this particular verse says. So I'm going to use it to kind of create my narrow way of understanding. But I think when we open ourselves up to those relations, to those conversations, we can learn so much more. Yeah. And what's messy about the Bible too, you know, getting back to, uh, you know, Mark and his comments Mm -hmm. is that the Bible says some pretty wacky things about marriage and, uh, or doesn't say a lot, you know, Jesus doesn't talk hardly at all all about marriage <laughs> which true. is and the, and the time that times that paul talks about it, it's usually in the context of yeah don't do it you know it's, right. it's, it's, it's just <laughs> stay be away single. from that yeah, you know you really don't want all that mess in your life right you know i mean so if you want to take them seriously i mean really that you know it's 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 kind of it's it's really tricky and then the hebrew scriptures again they thought of women as property you know and then all kinds of crazy rules that made sense in their context but you know but if a man dies, you know, his brother has to marry his wife, you know, kind of thing. And it's like, look, I mean, I love my sister-in-law, but, you know, <laughs> my brother dies. She's on her own, you know. Right, kind of right, right, right. Uh, 
So yeah, it's really hard to it's hard to sort of uh, pick and choose stuff out of the scriptures, and to say, well, this is this is biblical marriage, or this is the way when you think about it, because they thought of marriage very very differently than the way we do. Yeah, and uh, and the fact that Jesus never married too, I mean, that's kind of problematic in terms of, you know, the the most ideal what we what Christians would think of as the most you know perfect human who ever lived decided, nah, I'm not gonna get married. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, Yeah. it should speak volumes, right? In some way. Yeah, yeah. You would think. Yeah, it's funny. Whenever that that topic of biblical marriage comes up, I always say, "Well, which version of biblical marriage are we talking about?" Because I can open up to various books and see various stories about marriage, and a lot of them are very different. So, if we're gonna let's land on a single definition (laughs) before we move forward, because there's lots of different ones I think mirrored throughout the different stories of the Bible. Exactly. All right. So last question for you, um, because we're getting a little bit short on time. People who are listening to this, who have just had their minds blown and stretched a little bit, (laughs) uh, what are are the takeaways that you would hope for our listeners, for people who are maybe going to go and pick up your book after this? Like, what are you hoping that they take away from this conversation and use in their lives, their relationships, things like that? Yeah, my hope my hope for people is first, I guess, to sort of deconstruct what they think they know about marriage and, mm-hmm. and to say, um, you know, it's not it's not quite as simple as you think it is, yeah. uh, the history yeah. of it and and where we've come from and 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 how we deal with it. And then hopefully then to give them some tools to say, I want to reinvent marriage in my own life and yeah. and uh and and think of it not because I'm socially prescribed to do it a particular way, but because this is what works for for myself and my partner and the way in which we live and the season of our lives. Uh, and so, you know, I try to provide some tools in that to begin to ask those questions of, of how, how, you know, what, what is this going to look like for us mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so that's, that's what I'm really hoping people will do. I'm not trying to give them the, you know, here's the new right answer kind yeah. of thing, but to say, you know, you got to figure this out for yourself because marriage is much more plastic than I think we give it credit for. And so, yeah. Yeah. So let's, love, let's, let's allow it to be that. Yeah. And I love that because you're, you're encouraging people to communicate right with, with one another. And I think <laughs> that's the biggest thing, especially within a marriage, whatever that marriage looks like. Like if you have these needs that aren't being met, whatever those needs might be, and you don't talk about it with the other person, but then you just go try to find, have those needs met somewhere else that creates a huge problem in itself because there's a level of dishonesty there. There's a level of hiding, but if you're just open with like I said before, whether it's about finances, whether it's about romance, whatever it might be, whether it's about just needing somebody to listen to me talk. Like if you're open with your partner and you say, I'm not getting this here, let's try to figure out how we can both have our needs met. Like that's a much different conversation than, you know, this person's not meeting my needs. So I'm just going to go figure it out myself somewhere else like that. I think that right. the whole relationship can take a whole nother turn have a whole nother dynamic when there's that level of communication and openness that's there. And so for me, that's one of the biggest things I got from this book is that we just have to know what our needs are and we have to be honest with the other person with what those needs are. Actually use our words. How about that? Yeah. Right. Who would have thought use our, (laughs) use use our words, right? That's awesome. Well, Hey, we're just about out of time, uh, but this has been a lot of fun. Uh, Thank you for your work. Thanks for taking time to join me and uh, thanks for what you do. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks, Glenn. Absolutely. And real quick, where can people go online to connect with you, your work, any websites you want to point us to? Yeah, of course, the books in, on Amazon and Audible, you know, and I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter uh, just under Dana Robert Hicks. There's not a lot of Dana Robert Hicks out there, luckily. So if you look <laughs> for, for those on Amazon, Audible, Facebook or Twitter, you can probably find me. So 
Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to connect with folks who want to talk more too, if they're interested in the conversation. So Great. I'll put the links in the show notes and I'm sure we'll do it again sometime. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Glenn. Thank you. No.